Feeds it right wing corner for Malkin, looking back in front for Dumoulin. It was tipped away from him by DeBrusque, and the Bruins cleared out the center ice. Gino's a little slow to get back into play here. He got crunched by Tenorti, and now he's leaning on the shin guards, dragging himself to the Penguins bench. Good, clean hit by Tenorti on Malkin. Keep an eye on Malkin. He remains on the bench as he takes his seat. Shot from Evan Rodriguez. Malkin gets flattened. Tenorti lays him out and he's slow to get up. Buck finds Malkin. Good stick from Jake DeBrusque, denying Rodriguez a backdoor chance. It's too bad the Penguins didn't have the luck of the Irish this week. Lately, if it weren't for bad luck, the Penguins would have no luck at all. Is there an NHL team that has been more tortured by injuries than the Pittsburgh Penguins the last two seasons? But hey, the sun came up this morning and it is a great day for hockey, even in Newark, New Jersey. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Penguins Live Weekly. I'm Paul Steigerwald, Brian Metzer, as always, alongside on my left wing today. And Wayne Gretzky-Anderson is on my right wing, and good morning, Mets. One way or another, Gino has been the center of attention this season. He has, Stag, and uh, first I'll say I always love playing left wing because I'm a right-handed shot, and oh, I can just like, bang those shots in. But, uh, yeah, Gino was first criticized for his play early in the year, everybody wondering what's wrong with Gino. Then Gino became one of the best Penguins and was flying, and unfortunately, he's been grounded now, and it sounds like it's going to be week to week without Evgeny Malkin. Of course, Teddy Bluger was also injured, and I'm still not sure how he got hurt, but I saw what Brad Marchand did to him. Yeah, it's it's disappointing because he was really turning into a special player for the Penguins. He's a great penalty killer for them. He's been chipping in offensively, one of their best shorthanded weapons, too, in scoring goals. So uh, hopefully he's not out near as long as Evgeny Malkin because the Penguins' center depth has been tested. But they do have depth and versatility, and they aren't alone, by the way, in the injury department. The Islanders lost their captain. Uh, the Bruins are banged up on defense. The Capitals have been using a third goalie all season. He's done a good job. The Flyers had those COVID problems. You get my drift. It's just running wild through the league, and uh, I would make the case that the Penguins, it's not even the past two years with their injuries. This goes back as long as Sid and Gino have been in Pittsburgh, if not beyond, thinking of the Mario issues way back. So uh, everybody's dealing with it this year, and I guess it's leveled the playing field to a certain extent in the Mass Mutual East. Well, there's two ways to look at these injuries to Malkin and Bluger. You could say, well, if they were ever going to happen, this is a good time to have it because the schedule is easier for the Penguins. The other side of that coin is, man, you, you really want to make sure you take advantage of this schedule and you want to have everything in your arsenal to be able to do that. Well, and I guess we could add it's best if they go out now rather than at the start of the Stanley Cup playoffs, assuming the Penguins make it, because they are going to be very important players then. So if they can weather the storm, take advantage of the easy, the quote-unquote easier schedule that lies ahead, this will situate them nicely to have those players come back as if they were trade deadline acquisitions. And think about it, Mets. Uh, when they talk about playoff hockey, they often refer to it as a war of attrition, and yep. they compare what we're doing this year in the regular season to playoff hockey, so it very much is similar. Yeah, I think the entire schedule has really felt like a playoff series with the little sets of games against teams. Then you magnify the points every single night being, you know, four-point swings. I mean, we saw the Penguins this week when we'll go through it with our recap. They had a chance to pull seven ahead of the Boston Bruins, and at the end of the night, they were only three ahead because they lost the game. Yeah, and with injuries piling up, every team has to deal with that. So depth 
the ability to sustain some level of competitiveness despite injuries is really what's going to be the ultimate test. Yeah, it's just who, who can weather this marathon. I mean, the Penguins up until I think this week we finally get two days off in a row as a team, us included. Beyond that, the Penguins played every other day of March to this point. So their bodies have to be broken, battered, bruised, and sadly a couple of guys were lost. Well, coming up, we will have highlights of what is quite possibly the busiest week in franchise history. Speaking of all those games, five games in six days. We'll quickly review four of them. We will visit with Pierre Maguire to talk trade deadline, among other things. And Mets and I will look ahead to today's game against the Devils at The Rock in Newark, New Jersey. It's another hour of spirited Saturday morning hockey talk on the Penguins Radio Network, presented by ST Bank. Welcome back to Penguins Live Weekly. We're here every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. to bring you uh, an hour of spirited hockey talk. And the week began in dreary Buffalo, New York, where points grow on trees for visiting hockey teams. It was the second of two against the Sabres. And Casey DeSmith got the call. Jake Gensel broke the ice with a power play goal late in the second period, the only goal that the Penguins would need. Lazar against Crosby. Face-off won by Buffalo, but pinned on the far wall by Brandon Montour as he's leaned on by Gensel. Crosby also in there digging, as is Rust, who feeds the point man Latang. He'll walk the line, right side for Malkin. In front, deflected in on goal, and they score! Two cracks at it atop the crease for Jake Gensel. He stays hot on the power play. It's 1-0 Pittsburgh. Just a gorgeous goal by Gensel. He batted it out of the air on his own rebound to score. The Penguins got Sidney Crosby and Mark Jankowski empty netters, and Casey DeSmith stopped all 24 shots for his first shutout of the season. 3-0 the final score. Fifth straight win for the Penguins and Mets. They took care of business. Four points from the Sabres, something we said they had to do, especially knowing that the Islanders had had 12 from the Sabres, and the Capitals now have 11. Well, it was great to finally see them come up on the Penguin schedule. We had talked so much about all of the points that their opponents have gathered against them, and they took care of their business, got the points you needed to against a team that is still reeling at the uh, time of our conversation right now. I mean, they just can't not really get things going in the right direction, can they? No, in fact, uh, they got worse, and Ralph Kruger was eventually fired. Yep, and it's I think we all saw that coming. Sadly, I don't know that he deserved it. It's just a team that doesn't seem to be on the same page, but, you know, that's the easiest change a general manager can make. And they have to pay him $3.75 million next year, so I'm not feeling sorry for him, by the way. I'd, I'd take that much to sit at home for a season. I don't know about you. <laughs> Things got much tougher on Monday and Tuesday for the Penguins. The Bruins were in town for back-to-backs, and Tristan Jari continued his dominance on home ice. He made 42 saves, 19 of them in the first period, when the Penguins turned a 1-0 deficit into a 2-1 lead. Latang gathers for Pittsburgh back in his own zone. Fires left wing for Dumoulin, up ahead for Crosby. He's over the line, right wing for Gensel, into the high slot, goes right wing, Crosby shoots, he scores! Bottom of the right wing circle, Sidney Crosby slips it through Halak, and the Penguins make it 2-1. That proved to be the game winner in a 4-1 win, and in that game, Teddy Bluger was lost to injury and is out long term. He got tripped up by Brad Marchand, who then cracked him over the back of the neck with his stick. Unbelievable. The video just shows what he did to him. Uh, he's the dirtiest player in the league, I think, and he is a great hockey player. But, man, he gets away with a lot. He's the Carl Rackey of the NHL. If you think <laughs> back to Youngblood, he can go out and score big goals for his team, and he does that an awful lot, but he still has that mean streak in him when he uh, earned his nickname, the little ball of hate. That's why he does that kind of stuff too often. Casey DeSmith started the second of back-to-backs Tuesday night, and for the 11th time in 15 home games, that's 11 times in 15 home games, the Penguins allowed the first goal when David Pasternak cashed in on the power play. Ten seconds left in the power play. Marshawn hits a streaking Pasternak on the backhand. He tucks it in. 
David Pasternak, a power play goal for Boston, and they get in front early in this one. It's one nothing Bruins. Brandon Tanev became the story on this night, but not just because he scored the Penguins' only goal. As Rodriguez pushes it back into the Boston end. Pasternak out of the box. Penn's controlling, though, on the far side. It's Kapanen in front. Rodriguez shoots his stop made by Vladar, and the rebound put in by Tanev. The Penguins get the goal at the expiration of the power play. They've tied this game. Brandon Tanev finds the back of the net. Camper battling Rodriguez. Richie back to Tenorti. Totally. And Camper decides that that was out of bounds for Tanev. Tenorti was having a pretty good game. He's around the puck a lot tonight. Yeah. Couple Pittsburgh shots on goal. This is the right way to go. Yep. And this is the point we made about the Wilson hit. Yep. Go ahead and call the major. I mean, there's the hit right there. It looks awfully clean to me, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. He hit him right in the chest. I mean, well, it's it's a bad result for Tenorti, yeah. but it's a good hockey hit. Yep. What do you think of that? Even the Bruins broadcast team was easy on Tanev, which is highly unusual for them, believe me. And uh, the Penguins were able to kill the five-minute major but couldn't use the momentum to their advantage in a 2-1 to loss. Trent Frederick, who seemed to take more exception to the hit than anybody and actually delivered a hit similar to that against uh, Lafreniere of the Rangers a little while back, scored the game-winning goal in the third period after the game Sid sent a message to the league saying that uh, he's, we need more clarity from the referees. It was one of uh, three recent incidents uh, that the Penguins were involved in, all with different interpretations from the referees. That's the most head-scratching thing about it, and Sidney Crosby clearly felt that way as well, Stag. And I know we talked about it on our post game, but quickly to tell people, it was Tom Wilson on Mark Jankowski, Zach Aston reese on Dylan Cousins of the Sabres, and then, of course, uh, Tanev on Tenorti here. And of them... Uh, you had the first result in a two-minute penalty. Aston Reese got no penalty, and then you have uh, Tanev going five and a game misconduct. So uh, I don't like the way that it all was interpreted, and I know a lot of people around the league kind of don't either, but Sid definitely questioned it, and he said players are scratching their heads wondering how these things are being called. Tenorti left the game on wobbly legs with a foggy head. He was injured on the play, but earlier in the game he was the hitter, not the hit-e. He had knocked Evgeny Malkin out of the Penguins lineup with a thundering hit in the first period, and Gino did try to come back, but it was ugly if you really look at it on the replay the way his right leg seemed to be, well, buckled, I guess would be one way to put it. Yeah, it was uh, Tenorti's right leg caught, or his right knee essentially caught Gino right above his right knee, and I know we slowed down that video frame by frame and we're looking at it pretty closely. We didn't notice it right away that night. But it, it buckled back, and it was a hyperextension. And I guess the good news is that we are told uh, on Friday from Mike Sullivan that Gino's out week to week, which is better at the moment anyway than hearing he's out long, you know, longer term or or beyond that with a uh, a season-ending injury. And he did say there's a strong possibility that he could be back before the end of the regular season. So let's hope he's right. The Penguins might have won this game without him too. I mean, with him. I'm sorry if he had not. Yep. gotten injured. I think they might have won that hockey game against the Bruins. That was a very nasty hockey game. It was, and it had a, and I know you and I talked about this that evening, Stag. It had a playoff feel. It was um, a blue-collar approach by both teams. Tons 80, of hits, right? 86 combined hits. Yeah. They just beat each other up. And you could also make the case that even minus Gino, had they not had to kill off a five-minute 
penalty, which they did, and got some momentum. Mark Jankowski got a shorthanded breakaway, or it was a breakaway right after. It may have been after it expired or late in the penalty. He couldn't score. So if he scores there, it's probably a different result. If they don't have to kill it, maybe they come back and find a way to tie the game or win the game, something like that. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Uh, Frederick ends up getting the game winner, and that's all she wrote. The Penguins have had a good record without Geno over the years, and going into Thursday night's game against the Devils in Newark, New Jersey. They were hoping that trend would continue, but of course they're also playing without Teddy Bluger, so very damaged down the middle. The Devils had nine wins on the season, and they had scored the first goal in eight of them, which means that probably it would have been a good idea for the Penguins to get the first goal, but the Devils used that same formula to beat the Penguins. Comes back for Hughes right side, works off a check from Rodriguez, gets it back at the left wing circle. Hughes dances towards the net on the forehand, shoots, he scores! Jack Hughes upstairs, bar down on Jari, and the Devils strike first. It's 1-0 New Jersey. Goals by P.K. Subban and Travis Zajac build it to a 3-0 lead, and the Penguins got a power play goal late in the second period from Jake Gensel, his fifth in six games. Rust to the near side for Crosby, spins it up the right wing wall for Latang. 20 seconds in the period. At the center point, Chris Latang, Left side for Kapanen. Back to the center point, Latang. He'll slap one towards the goal. They score. Deflected atop the crease by Jake Gensel. It's a power play goal for Pittsburgh and some life late in the second, 3-1. Matt, strong finishes. Comeback wins have been the Penguins' trademark this season. But, you know, to go along with that, of course, you have to have a slow start. And there have been a lot of those. The Penguins have been able to overcome them, but not on this particular night. No, I thought it was a particularly uh, slow start for them. And, for the Devils not quite being the defensive juggernauts that they once were, they did a nice job of bottling the Penguins up early who didn't have their legs under them. And then once they got that first goal by Jack Hughes, the Penguins were playing catch-up all night. Uh, and then they found themselves in a two-goal hole and then a three-goal hole. But the point you just made, the way they were able to finish some of these games in the past, it looked like that could be in the offing. They put a ton of shots on goal. They were really firing, and unfortunately they ran out of time both in the second period and third period, scoring two late goals. Yep, 22 shots in the second period fired at Scott Wedgwood, who was in goal for the game on Thursday night. It wasn't even supposed to play originally. It was supposed to be Mackenzie Blackwood, but he was damaged himself somehow in the warm-up. So Wedgwood came in out of nowhere, and uh, he had shut out the Penguins back in 2016 and almost pulled another one off. Uh, he faced 42 shots in total. Uh, without Gino and Teddy Bluger, a makeshift lineup put put together. Teddy B was out, but Freddie G was in. Yeah, Freddie Gaudreau is a guy that I think we've all been waiting just to see if he would contribute at some point. I mean, Penguins fans may remember him being a thorn in their side as a member of the Nashville Predators in the Stanley Cup Final a handful of seasons ago. I don't know that it happened on this night. He finally drew into the lineup. He seems like an energetic guy, a fun type of guy, but he got nine minutes and five seconds of ice time in the game. He had a little bit of power play time, 25 seconds, registered just one shot on goal, wasn't good in the face-off circle. He won just, uh, we won 50%, so I don't want to beat him up too much about that, but he was a minus one. So it wasn't Teddy Bluger, unfortunately, but nobody really that they had in the coffers would be. And maybe by uh, this afternoon we see Radim Zahora, but we'll see. We don't know yet. Yeah, Zahora is a guy who played in the Czech League last year, 6'7", a guy who can skate, plays center ice. But from what we understand, Jared McCann is close to, I mean, really close, as close as you can get to returning without returning, uh, it seems to me. So I would expect him to be in the lineup today. Yeah, I would agree with you, and I'm, we can break it down a little bit more as we move through the show, but I, I might pencil him in as a second-line center if he's able to go, just because he is the most upside. 
I agree. And I think McCann did a great job last year when Sidney Crosby was out of the lineup, the yep. second line center playing behind at the time, of course, of Genny Malkin, who was playing great hockey. But uh, that was probably the best stretch we've seen for McCann sustained uh, this year or in his career with Pittsburgh. So we'll see if he can pick up where he left off as a second line center, if that is the case today against the New Jersey Devils. In just a moment, an old friend, Pierre Maguire, will visit with us. We'll talk the trade deadline and among other things. So stay tuned for that as Penguins Live Weekly continues on the Penguins Radio Network, presented by ST Bank. Welcome back to Penguins Live Weekly. We're here every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., and we're here right now with Pierre Maguire. No introduction needed. And Pierre, great to have you on the radio with us. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Good to visit with you, gentlemen. Hello, Paul. Pierre, uh, obviously the trade deadline is something we want to talk about, but before we do that, uh, the news on Evgeny Malkin is that he's going to be out week to week. You never know how many weeks that actually is. What are your thoughts on what that does for the Penguins and also whether or not you think that's the kind of event that could force the Penguins into making a trade they might not otherwise have tried to make? Well, I think it might force their hand into trying to make a deal. Obviously, it's a really tight race uh, in the Eastern Conference when you look at the standings. So that's something that I'm sure that Ron Hextall and Brian Burke are very well aware of. And so, you know, not having Evgeny really hurts your, your second line in particular if you want to number your lines. Paul, the one thing that was really interesting that I noticed over time, I'm sure you felt the same way, um, the chemistry that was starting to evolve with Kasperi Kapan and, and Evgeny Malkin really was starting to make a difference for the Pittsburgh Penguins and was taking a lot of pressure off of Gensel, Rust, and Crosby. And without Geno there now, I don't know what that does to Kasperi Kapan and in terms of can he play as a second-line winger or not. So we'll see. But I have to think that if this is long-term, the, the Penguins are probably going to have to make a deal. Well, you know what, Pierre, when you, you look at that situation with, with Gino being out of the mix, it was made worse by Teddy Bluger being out for the Penguins as well. So I think that exposed a lack of depth maybe at the center position for them. And when you start in that, that third-line center aspect, does that even force their hand a little more than just losing Gino? Well, I don't know how long Bluger's out, obviously. And, sure. and that's a significant thing for them. The chemistry that was evolving there with Tanev, Bluger, and Aston Reese was phenomenal. That was an amazing weapon that Mike Sullivan had at his disposal to play against the other team's best lines more times than not. And again, take away a lot of the defensive responsibilities for Malkin and for Crosby. Uh, with that injury happening, I don't know what that does long-term if Teddy's out long-term, but he's been an amazing player. And you know, you look at Bluger and, and Tanev, you can argue that outside of maybe Blake Coleman and Barkley Goodrow or uh, Alex Kalorn and Braden Point, it might be, uh, or, or Sir Anthony Sorelli, I should even say, that might be the best penalty killing tandem in the league uh, for Pittsburgh when they're together. But all that being said, um, not going to be easy if you have two guys out at center ice. It's, it's really difficult. Of course, the larger question is do the Penguins have assets that they can even move right now? or would want to move to be able to get a player that might uh, fill the void. And I guess my next question is, Pierre, assuming they could figure out a way to do it, would there be any centermen out there that you think would fit the bill as guys who could at least uh, you know, make a bridge between now and when Geno is ready to play? I don't like throwing players' names out there, Paul. You've known me a long time. If, if it's really going to be done, it's probably going to be done amongst general managers. I really don't feel comfortable throwing that out there. Uh, just throwing guys' names out there. The one thing I'd say is the one thing for Pittsburgh, and I'm sure Ron Hextall and Brian Burke are going to address this, is there's a lack of organizational depth at all positions. I think they're very well aware of that. 
And so I would imagine that they're going to put a high priority on the draft and acquiring draft picks. So it's going to be, again, interesting to see how they play it. In terms of around the league, part of what's – there are three things that I think are going to affect the trade deadline, gentlemen. One is going to be the financial wherewithal of a lot of these teams actually want to go out and mess around financially. There have been massive pain uh, around the league financially uh, for these owners. So I don't know how much of an appetite there is for a lot of these owners to take on more salary. That's number one. Number two, and I think this is really important, uh, the COVID situation and quarantining. I think that's going to be a big problem. And the third thing is, and I, you know, we have an expansion draft coming up, and I don't know how much people are paying attention to that, but the last time we had an expansion draft, a lot of these teams got taken to the woodshed, Pittsburgh included, on Marc-Andre Fleury. And so I would just say that a lot of teams are being very, very careful about what they're going to do at the trade deadline this year. What do you think of the races, Pierre, and just the general feel of the league this year with the divisional play and the way it's uh, starting to heat up right now in the NHL? Phenomenal, Paul. It really has been. I'm so proud of the league and the way the players have conducted themselves. This has not been easy. Um, and when you compound that with the fact that, you know, a lot of these players spent the summer in pods, whether it was in Toronto or whether it was in Edmonton. I spent nine and a half weeks in Edmonton, and I can tell you the way they conducted themselves as players and professionals was mind-shattering in a good way, real positive. So I've never been more proud of the league, the way they've dealt with COVID and the way the players have acted so professionally and the organizations have supported the players. Um, In terms of the races, they're unbelievable, Paul. And, And, you know, the biggest thing is, again, when you're looking at all these races, it's not so much the battle for the top spot in a lot of them. It's going to be the battle for the, for the fourth and even the third position in a lot of these divisions. So it's really interesting to watch how uh, all these teams are competing. It really is. Hey, Pierre, uh, when you look at the races in that way, can you make a case this year that the trade deadline may even be impacted by the fact that you really only have to figure out right now how to match up with those teams you're head-to-head with so often because you're, uh, you're, you're playing the division team so much that you don't have to go up uh, measuring yourself against the Lightning or Colorado or something like that today. You have to figure out how to play those teams in the Final Four, assuming you get there. That's a great point. I'd say there's something to that, absolutely. Part of what I think will happen, though, the trade pool, if there are trades, and I think there will be. We've already seen some, but I do think there will be. The trade pool has been shrunk because of the the border and so it's going to be harder for i don't see the canadian division teams or the north division trading amongst each other i just don't i just don't see that unless ottawa wants to move somebody along i just don't see that happening um in the canadian division and then you compound it with it's it's a two-week quarantine for any american-based player being traded to canada so that makes it that much more difficult in the trade deadlines on april the 12th so i do think there's some merit to your point no question one thing I've uh, taken note of, and I'm sure a lot of other people in hockey, Pierre, and you see more games than anybody I know, uh, the players are getting nastier out there on the ice right now. It's getting, uh, you know, we thought this would be kind of a playoff feel, but you're really, in the playoffs, there's no fighting really, but there is some serious physicality, especially in the early round. But I just wonder if you've noticed that across the league and what you think of it. Oh, well, first of all, I'm old school. I like the physicality. I think back to our great teams that you did such an expert job covering with Mike Lang back in the day in 1991 and 92, and you can say that the 92 Cup winning team was as tough as any team that ever played in the NHL. You know, I was talking about it the other day with Eddie Olchuk, and you think about Rick Tockett and Kevin Stevens and and how Nash and Brian Trotje 
uh, Bobby Airy, Phil Bork, Troy Loney, Jay Caulfield. We had a whole lot of nasty on that team. So I like old school hockey, Paul, and uh, we coached that way. Uh, I remember drawing up game plans and series plans for the Boston Bruins when they had a juggernaut, and most people thought we had no chance of beating them. And a big part of it was we were going to out-physical them. And you can talk to any of the players that were in those meetings. Um, it was mostly about intensity and, and physical contact. So I see a lot of the same stuff going on now, and a lot of it's because of the rivalries that you've alluded to. Well, Pierre, uh, to that point, uh, I like the physicality uh, a good bit myself and just hard-nosed hockey, but I know uh, th- earlier this week we heard Sid kind of talk here in Pittsburgh about just some of the inconsistency and in enforcing the rule book as it is, and I'm sure that's just a human thing with official to official, but we saw a couple different plays in Pittsburgh this season that were so similar, and they all were called differently. There was the Tom Wilson hit on Mark Jankowski way back in one of those Washington yep. Pens games. Then there was obviously the Zach Aston Reese on Dylan Cousins, and then, of course, what we saw with Brandon Tanev the other night on uh, Tenorti. Where, where do you fall on that? Is it just um, a human thing because there are different guys involved, or, or what's going on with that? Is there just a need to be a little bit clarity there? I do think there needs to be some clarity, first of all. Secondly, I did the game for the national network on NBC Sports Network between Boston and Pittsburgh, and, and I didn't really think, I thought it was a nasty hit. I thought there was violence to the hit, yep. but I didn't think it was dirty. I didn't think it was a penalty, unless you want to call it a charge. I've talked to Paul about it, unless you want to call it a charge. Uh, it wasn't high. It wasn't late. It wasn't into the boards. The thing that got Tenorti in trouble is, as a left shot, he was leaning into the left side of his body, so all his weight was on his outside boot, on the outside yep. part of his left leg, and that compounded the problem for him because he went careening into the boards. I don't think the damage was done from the hit. The damage was done from the collision with the boards. So I thought that the officials overreacted by giving him a game misconduct. They said that on the air. Some people agreed with me. Some didn't. Clearly the league agreed with me because Tanev wasn't suspended and he wasn't yep. fined. So you look at it. Um, there has been inconsistency. And I can tell you, I told this to Paul today, you can go look at a tape of uh, Trent Frederick hitting Alexi Lafreniere virtually the same way Tanev put a hit on, uh, on Tenorti, and there was no penalty on the play. We were laughing here about the fact that the Zach Aston Reese on Dylan Cousins was probably the worst of the three, and yep. it was the only one that went unpenalized. <laughs> and it just kind of summed the whole thing up for us. Pierre, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> before you go, Pierre, I just want to ask you, uh, just to give us a quick summary of how many games you watch, how you watch them, and how you're calling games this year, because it's all different right now. Yeah, all the games are different. Some nights I'm out on the road, obviously. Some nights I'm in the studio, so it depends. Uh, I was in Colorado last week for that unbelievably historic snowstorm ball. <laughs> it took 19 hours to get back from Denver to New York City, believe it or not. It was just crazy. Um, so that was a road game, and I'm in the studio this week. I was in the studio last week doing the Bruins game with Pittsburgh. Um, I'll be back on the road not too far in about a week to 10 days. Some cities have inside the glass positions available. Some cities don't. I get COVID tested once a week, and if I'm doing a game in a building, I get COVID tested before I go into the building. So sometimes it could be three COVID tests in a week. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, in the bubble, I was tested every day for nine and a half weeks. Uh, even number days was nasal, odd number days was throat, and I prefer the nasal to the throat, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, at least um, you know you're healthy, right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. That's what I tell my wife all the time. Uh, in terms of how I watch games, I watch almost every single game that's played. Uh, I won't watch them all in, in an entirety unless the game is really spectacular. I have to work it one of the two teams the next day or two or three days after. Um, but I compile notes on every single player and every single coach and every single team in the league, and I've been doing that for 30 years. What really blows my mind as we say goodbye, Pierre, is just how many uh, players you were aware of long before we all knew their names and, and who uh, coached them in college and in junior and over in Europe. It's amazing to me. You're just like a, a, a steel trap in terms of remembering everything. You're a sponge, and that's because you love hockey so much, and we love talking to you because of it. Well, I love being your friend, first of all. We had so many great days on the road with those winning Stanley Cup teams, and over the years I've always cherished your friendship, Paul, and your your passion for the sport is awesome. It's so endless. Um, part of how I am, like I am as a hockey person, I learned from the great Scotty Bowman. And uh, you know what? It's just he's 86 years of age, and we talk virtually you know, at least two or three times a week and sometimes every day, depending on the week. And he's doing fantastic. He watches more hockey than anybody. We were comparing notes on college games the other day. It was actually pretty funny. So, yeah, we watch a lot of hockey, and I love doing it. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks, Pierre. We really appreciate your time. i got to say, we're never going to get Staggy out of this room now. You've pumped him up so much. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for that. You got him all fired up. Well, I can't wait for the next time I get to visit Pittsburgh so I can go have a piece of pizza with Paul. We'll get, him, we'll get Paul in shape. Don't worry. All right, great visiting with you guys. Have a great weekend. You too, Pierre. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we will be back with some final discussions and close out the show in just a moment. Penguins Live Weekly continues in a moment on the Penguins Radio Network, presented by S&T Bank. Welcome back to the show. Thanks again to Pierre McGuire for joining us. And, uh, Mets, we have some time here to kind of go over a few items. Uh, first of all, the Penguins' uh, injury issues have uh, been something that have been pretty prevalent here over the last several years. And you mentioned earlier in the show, they go back a long way. I mean, I can remember in 2011 when the Penguins lost both Geno, uh, Sid, and Jordan Stahl. Weren't all three of them out for, for a while? Yeah, there? Jordan Stahl was out for a big chunk, and as soon as he got back, I think he played one game, and that's when they lost Sid to his head injury. He was in the outdoor game. And then Geno had Tyler Myers fall and destroy his knee. He fell on his leg, if I'm not mistaken. It was a game against that, at yeah. the Sabres yeah. uh, at, the, at that point. And so the Penguins uh, still managed to have a great season. Dan Bilesma was the uh, Jack Adams winner that year, if I'm not mistaken. And then they were I don't even want to bring up the memory of that playoff. Because uh, they were up three games to one against Tampa. Yeah, and uh, Dwayne Rollison, if I'm not mistaken, was just unbeatable. And then that brings up one of my most angry moments, Stag, and I'll throw it out quick for our listeners. Final game seven there. Penguins are, need one goal. Oh, I know what it you, is. I you get, acquire I Alex Kovalev for this particular situation, essentially. You have an extra man advantage. You have your goalie pulled. And Mark Letestu's on the ice, and Alex Kovalev is pinned to the bench because Dan Bilesmo was angry with what he had brought to the table to that point, at least as far as I know. And boy, I was as mad as a wet hen at that point. <laughs> and uh, the Penguins were dispatched, and unfortunately, who knows what the future might have held there. I know they wouldn't have had their big guys, but okay, mini rant done. 
and think of the year Sid would have had because he was absolutely on fire when he uh, suffered that head injury in the yeah. winter tragic, as I called it. Wasn't he uh, over 60 points in 45 games or something? I mean, it was or 41 games. It was just insane. The, the run he was on that season, that was by far Sid taking over everybody. And it happened night in, night out. He had a scoring streak going at one point that season. It, it did come to an end before his injury, if I'm not mistaken. But he was really making a run at that record, rolling up goals, assists, making everybody around him better. And if I'm not mistaken, that was one of the first times we really saw uh, Dupuis and Kunitz thriving with him as well. That was just that trio kind of was born to life. I know they had played together previously, but it really became something special. And all three of them were just rolling. And unfortunately, uh, thanks, David Steckel. We're, we're still mad at you. The Penguins, uh, when they won the Cup in 09, had Matt Cook. Um you know, they had Patrick Hornquist, a guy who was more of an initiator, I would say, by virtue of the fact that he went to the net hard and disturbed goalies, and he took his share of a beating but to do it. But if you know what I mean, he, yep. he was willing to go there and create the, the, the chaos around the net. a battering ram. And, you know, the, why do the Penguins get hurt? I, I, I think part of it might be that they're on the receiving end a lot of hits, and that's because they have the puck a lot, because they're a skilled team, Teams target them. They know if they play physically against them. Not all of the injuries that the Penguins sustain are as a result of you know uh, contact. Sometimes it's just an injury from yep. a fluke thing, like like when Jason Zucker went down. He he just kind of blew a tire and went down. And but it is interesting to me. And the player Penguins tend to be a more a smaller team. I think I, you know I don't think they're as as physically imposing as some other teams. But it is kind of odd how the Penguins have to sustain every year so many injuries. I agree, and uh, I think that's a good point you make. Uh, and I heard you mention it on um, XM a, a little bit earlier this season as well. That they do take a lot of hits. They are, they are just. I don't want to see people take runs at them. They just are, are physical with them, and and they blow them up in the corners a lot. And when they're fighting for pucks, you know, four checkers get in on our our defensemen. Uh, I think that the forwards get beaten up by opposing defensemen a little bit in the corners. We saw it happen with Evgeny Malkin. I mean, that's what Tenorti did. He finished his check with Gino coming around the corner, and he just makes direct body contact. And the next thing you know, unfortunately, two legs come into contact and Gino's lost. If he just hits body on body with torso on torso, maybe you don't have that injury. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that the, the hitting definitely ramps up against the Penguins. And it's not even a matter of them not being um, a physical team or, or people always say you need a goon. I'm, we're not, you're not saying that. You're not saying they need a goon. You just need sometimes somebody to return the favor a little bit. And aside from the Boston game where there were 86 combined hits, I don't know that they go out and really make teams pay as often as they're made to pay. I agree with that. In other words, they're not initiating. They'll be perfectly happy to oblige. If that's the way you want to play against them, they'll they'll hold their own physically, but they're not a team noted for having tipping the scales, if you will, from a physical standpoint to establish territory and to win games. That's the way I see it. When I'm quickly looking up and they're down. They're a speed team. Yeah, they definitely are. And I know you and I joked before we were live today about looking back at some old drafts and it was, you know, maybe pick up this defenseman or do this or that. And we, we were lamenting having a player like Trent Frederick in your organization or a Tom Wilson, just somebody to come out and play that snarly type of, I don't want to say dirty, but uh, a physical game. And the Penguins really don't draft guys like that or even look to acquire them. I mean, Matt Cook was one, uh, but even Hornquist wasn't known for being that kind of guy when they acquired him. He was a bigger body and can get in the front of the net and disrupt, but they just don't go that direction. They look for speed. They look for skill. But... What I was going to say is you look up and down their lineup in terms of size, 
I think there's one guy that's over six foot four, not many over six foot, and Anthony Angelo is the only one. He's six foot five. Everyone else is pretty much in the, the high five foot range into the really low six foot range. And there's a lot of really big boys out there. You look at defensemen, and I know the Penguins don't see him this year a lot at all, but like Victor Hedman, huge dude. He he's he's like pushing seven feet tall. And then you put him on skates. Char is with the caps now. He still does one thing well beat people up <laughs> you know? yeah. and it's like it's you don't have an answer for that right and Tenorti, the penguins had him in their organization he played at wilkesbury and yep. they didn't really use him uh and you know he's been up and down from the minors to the nhl but i think you saw the other night with that hit on malkin that he's capable of delivering a big blow he's not as good of his dad his dad was unbelievable he was a really good player yep he was yep. a great player okay so the Flyers, who were always more physically imposing than uh, the teams they played against, not so much anymore, I would say. Uh, again, they're another team that can hold their own, and they still play a little bit of a nasty game. But, man, they got blown out this week, 9 to nothing. And, you know, it's not so much losing 9 to nothing; It's how you respond to it. And I give them credit. They came back and beat the they Islanders. Won, they yeah. almost blew a lead. But really, Islanders that's— quickly lost a couple in a row then, right, in going, coming out of that game. Yeah, you're right. And so, you know, and they're without Anders Lee— we talked about that uh, earlier in the in the show, in the open of the show, the fact that uh, all these teams are suffering injuries. That tips the scales a little bit in the division, in my opinion, Anders Lee being out. And Lou Lamorello said last couple days that he uh, is going to be very active looking for somebody to replace Anders Lee's, and I'll be interested to see what he goes for. He's made some good deals. I mean, he got J.G. Pajot. That was a great trade yep. last year. Uh, so the, the Islanders are looking, and the Flyers, you wonder what they're going to do because they're teetering, and their goaltending has been really suspect. I was just going to throw that out there because you keep hearing about some goaltenders that might be available. And I know it was Kevin Weeks, if I'm not mistaken, was asked about changing in season to another team as a goalie and how difficult that is. And he was, uh, I think they said over the course of his career, he went three or four times, two of which he was traded at the deadline. And he was trying to integrate into a new system and all that's kind of difficult. However, the Flyers, based on what you just said, are prime candidates to do that. And um, a guy such as Pecorine comes to mind because there's talk that the Nashville Predators might be moving him. And you have UC Soros down there that's really becoming the number one now or starting to. So would they look that direction potentially or somebody like that? Uh, maybe a Jonathan Quick or somebody I think Quick's on the shelf right now. But to find a goaltender that could come in and play for them to solidify things until you can get Carter Hart right again. Which, by the way, I want to throw out Quick. You mentioned that 9 nothing debacle. People went to Twitter and everywhere else and right away were ripping them to shreds and saying, everyone says the Flyers finally have a goaltender and how great they're going to be with Carter Hart. I don't pin that on him. If you watch the game, first of all, Brian Elliott gave up five goals. Carter Hart comes in and got no defensive support. Mika Zibanejad was having an awesome night, first of all. Six-point second yeah, period. Yeah, a seven-goal second period for the team. They were zigzagging passes through the flyer zone all night long. Guys standing around watching. Any goaltender would have just been completely lit up. Now, Carter Hart's not been good this year. I'm not going to blame him for that particular game. That was a bit absurd. The, the criticism I saw being ramped up towards him after that game when the Flyers just had one of those dog, dogged nights where it was just ugly. Could and, you imagine if Michael Terrian was the coach of the Flyers the head, I, instead of I, Elaine Vigneault? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and he was right there on the bench. He had to be thinking, I think that their goal is to be the worst defensive team in the league because that's what they looked like that night. But they came back and won, which I give them high marks for because that's really the test because every team has those horrible yep. nights, right? 
No, yeah, it was it was crazy. I just was watching that happen, and to your point, they responded in a big way, and they took advantage of the Isles because they had lost their game going into that. So now two down, Lee out of the lineup, and uh, boy, and now they're three points behind the Penguins, and yep. it's dicey. And the Penguins, they got to make hay here, Matt. So they got all these games against the Sabers and the Devils. Yeah, this the is Devils a big week. Have, have always given the Penguins fits, and they they beat them in Game One of this three game series. What do you look for? Uh, as we go forward today and then tomorrow in Pittsburgh. Well, I'm curious to see if we do get a redeem uh, Zahorna sighting in in one of, if not both, of the games this weekend. But you have to make two, I would say three or four points against the Devils this weekend. And then for sure, back-to-backs later this week coming uh, against the Buffalo Sabres. You've got to find a way to win at least three of those games, I would say, to, to keep pace because the teams ahead of the Penguin Stag just can't continue to win. I know we just talked about the Islanders losing a couple in a row, but the Caps are rolling along. The Islanders, really, up until this losing streak, they had at one point one nine of 10. So you don't you, every night you're feeling really good about yourselves. I said this to you on postgame after the last win against the Bruins. I'm like, well, hey, Penguins, or when they lost to the Bruins, 7-3 and three in their last 10, they're in pretty good shape. And then you looked at that night, both of the teams ahead of them had gone 9-1 uh, and one in their last 10. So not a good spot to be in, but I would say 3 of 4 for sure need to be won. Pierre Maguire wouldn't mention any names. You got any names that you think the Penguins might want to try to get as a bridge now with Geno out? I'm still eyeballing uh, Eric Halla as a, as a guy that uh, – Eric Halla that I'm interested in. I don't know that that'll happen. I know you have a player on that team, which you could throw out if you'd like. But uh, they got some work to do. I, there, there's going to be eyeballs around the league. I was just looking for a fourth-line center a week ago. That would have been maybe Brad Richardson, but it's a different deal Jim Rutherford now. would have Eric Stahl here by now, probably. All right, we <laughs> have uh, just had a great time talking to Pierre Maguire, talking to each other, and we certainly hope you've had a great time uh, hearing us talk to you. So uh, we'll do it again next Saturday morning. We're here every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. For Brian Metzer, I'm Paul Steigerwald, Wayne Gretzky-Anderson. Wayne Gretzky-Anderson is our producer. You've been listening to Penguins Live Weekly on the Penguins Radio Network, presented by s Bank.